right, we'll be reading verses 153 through 168. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous, and I am disgusted, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Lord, I hope for your salvation, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. You may be seated. I was drawn to the last stanza of what we just sang. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. Uh, That's good news, church. Uh, Thinking about that day, we get to be with Jesus. We get to see him face to face. Uh, Love singing about that and love thinking about that. This morning, we're going to be in God's Word, Psalm 119. We are seven, this is week seven in eight-week series that we are going through in the book of Psalms, in particular, Psalm 119. And so, uh, before we jump in, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our strength and that you're our shield. You're our rock of defense. You're our shelter in the time of storm. You're the one, Lord, who never fails. You are the God of our salvation, the everlasting Lord over all. And Father, as we study your word today, I pray that you would show us clearly what you intend for us to learn, that you would open our eyes to see and give our ears hearing ability, that we might take this word and be doers of this word as you grant us grace to do so. Father, I pray that you would help us respond with grace when we feel like responding otherwise. And this we pray in the name of the one who rescued us from the slavery of sin, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Can you think of a time when your response to someone got you into trouble? Everybody's smiling. Yeah. A time when your response got you into trouble. A few examples came to mind as I considered the question this morning. Um, Many of you in here have children. And so I was thinking about it from a parent-child standpoint. And 
put forward to you children here today. Have you ever found yourself, perhaps even of late, perhaps even of this last week, found yourself on the disciplinary end of things after having responded unfavorably to dad or mom? Or, men, have you ever responded harshly or inappropriately to your spouse, saying something that you wish you hadn't said? Women, have you ever responded to your husbands in a way that dishonored him, caused you some regrets afterwards? You ever been in a meeting and your response to an issue on the table sparked further wrath instead of a spirit of calmness? Or maybe you were being critiqued about your job and you responded defensively instead of hearing what your boss had to say. See, the response that we give to people, it matters greatly. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, I'd like you to consider this morning that your response represents the Lord that you claim to profess. And yes, it's true that all of what we say reflects our Lord, but I do believe that our response to what other people say toward us, to what other people say against us, this will be the test of our character. This will be the test of our integrity. And the world is watching for how the follower of Jesus responds to unfavorable situations, unfavorable circumstances that come his way. In fact, the world is waiting to quote you. Have you noticed that? The world is just waiting to quote what you have to say. You know, in the, in the realm of refereeing, it's been said on, on many different occasions. They caution us, and especially at this time of year as we're about to begin a new season... We hear quite often as an official some things to make sure that we're doing, some things to make sure we're not doing. One of the things that's very important for us as officials is that we are communicating properly with other officials, with players, with with coaches, and with table personnel. And one of the things they remind us of is that silence cannot be quoted. But as soon as you put something out there, it can be quoted. And if it's not something that's appropriate, if it's not something fitting... In our day of technology, in our day where there's cameras, in our day where there's microphones, you're going to be heard and you're going to be quoted. It's going to get out. Will you respond like the world or will you respond according to the word of God? You see, in those moments when it's difficult to respond, and and there's a lot of us, if not all of us, that have been there, it's hard to respond to something that's difficult, something that's coming our way. It's hard for us to receive it. The question is, how are you going to take your next steps? What are you going to do? If you're honest, you'll recognize your need for help. And yet very few of us are inclined to ask for help. Why? Well, there's something, it seems, on the inside that doesn't want the word to get out. There's a a certain level of fear present. We don't want someone to think that we need help. There's a spirit of pride that wells up inside, barricading the way for many of us to ask for help. We somehow 
think that asking for help equates to ignorance or inferiority or weakness. So we don't ask. And yet when we find ourselves on the receiving end of hard words, difficult challenges, unfair treatment, physical trials, how do we respond? How do we respond? I pray that we would respond, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need your help in how to respond here because in my flesh, I know I'm not going to get this one right. You see, we tend to operate like the world and receive. We, we, we receive, we, we tend to go back to, revert to what someone has said. We, we respond based on someone else's experience. We respond based on someone else's blog content. We respond based upon someone else's social media. But if you cried out for the God of heaven to help you respond rightly... That's what I subtitled this message. Help for how to respond. We need his help, friends. How does a righteous person respond to unfavorable treatment? And more specific, perhaps for our day, would be this question. How does a righteous person respond when the unfavorable treatment attacks his fundamental beliefs about God and his word? You see, this is the heart, I believe, of the text before us. When you are persecuted or wronged without a cause, how are you going to respond? How does the psalmist respond? How does God's word teach us to respond through the lens of Psalm 119? And I believe we have a foundational principle before us in verse 161. It says, princes persecute me, here's the phrase, without a cause. But my heart stands in awe of your word. You see, the context for what follows in 162 through 168, it's predicated upon 161. The context is persecution. Not some nebulous persecution happening to those around him. But no, this is persecution against him. And so having read the majority of Psalm 119 to this point, we would ask, why would someone be inclined to persecute this guy? And while he's not a perfect man, we've seen that. He's not a perfect man, but he is a God-fearing man. He's concerned about the things of God in his life. He's pursuing godliness and holiness as best he can. What's not to like about him? Why would anyone persecute this guy of all people? Why this guy? Well, evidently, at the time of writing, as he's moved by the Spirit, the psalmist writes about persecution affecting him. No doubt due to his godly behavior. His endeavoring to be godly, to be holy. And it seems like those in the world back in the day of the psalmist share some similarities with those in the world of our day. Our followers of God today, let's be more specific, our followers of Jesus Christ today, are they being persecuted, challenged, maligned and mocked because of the faith that they endeavor to live out. It's happening all around us. It's right before our eyes. We're seeing it all over the place. You endeavor to live like a Christ follower and you are bound to encounter some level of persecution. 
So what's the response from God's word through the psalmist? Before we go there, I think it's important for us to point out some typical human responses. What are some typical human responses to persecution that comes our way? I believe there's revenge. There's the idea of wanting to get back at someone. There's the idea of scheming to do them one better. There's this victim mindset. You play the role of victim. And so as victim, what do you do? In our world today, one of the things that a victim will do is we'll file a lawsuit. We'll file a lawsuit. Victims will also spread gossip. And they'll use the social media network to just tell their whole story to the world. A victim also may keep it internally where what will come about then will be this chronic bitterness and it'll take root. Where it will affect all of their relationships. Does God's word have something to say about how we respond to persecution and challenges, however unwarranted or unjust they may be. Let me ask you a question. Do we get a pass? Do we get a pass on persecution if it happens to be unjust or unwarranted? Do we get a pass on how we respond to that persecution if it's unjust coming our way? Do we get to handle that any way we want to? I don't think so. I don't believe that's what God's word says. Perhaps you don't have any princes, as we see in the text, princes persecuting you today. And you might right out of the gate say, this text doesn't apply to me. Uh, there are no prin- I don't, this, nobody's persecuting me. But before you go that route and think those thoughts, when you consider that a prince is someone in a position of authority, someone who ranks higher than you at the workplace, someone who is over you in the government realm, A prince may be someone in charge, someone entrusted with making decisions for the company, for the state, for the nation. The prince has been given authority, and he represents someone over you. The text says princes. That indicates a plurality. Perhaps there may be a collective group, an authoritative group that's working together, and together they're issuing challenges that are coming your way. You see, the persecution described in the text is being leveled at you, just as it was at the psalmist. It's personal. But notice, too, the persecution is without a cause. Without a cause. We might describe that as it's something uncalled for. It's something that you didn't deserve. It's something that's not fair. It's something that is unjust. In the midst of such persecution... How does the psalmist respond? And herein lies the foundational principle from God's word. Look at the text in 161. Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. Stands in awe. That little three-letter word, awe, has in mind reverence, has in mind honor, has in mind holy fear. Something, by the way, which we've lost in our world today as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. The psalmist responds by going back to God's word. His heart stands in awe of God's word. 
I believe his holy fear of God's word is directly linked and connected to his holy fear of God. What we have before us is a man who is wise and understanding about the things of God. I was reminded of the proverb in chapter 9, verse 10. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And that knowledge of the Holy One is what? Understanding. Princes may be persecuting you without a cause. But one who fears God and His Word is going to respond to such difficulty in a different way. Why? They're going to respond differently because they are a new creation in Christ. They're going to respond differently because they are filled with the Holy Spirit, friends. And I believe a good number of Christ followers today have drifted on this foundational principle. A fear of God and His Word has been relegated at best to the top shelf. It's been stored away. It's been deemed not needed. Have we become a Christian atheist where we rely on Christ in word, we profess him in word, but we live like he doesn't exist when it comes to how we operate day to day? See, a God-fearing person is one who sees God in his word as the source of his truth and the means by which he walks day by day. A God-fearing person sees God's word as applicable to every facet of his life. Not just a two-hour window on Sunday morning. Every facet of his life, it's instructing him on personal growth, on holy living, on relationships for how to respond to the hard things that inevitably come up in our lives. As you seek the Lord for help, in how you respond to the attacks that come. The starting point, friends, is a genuine relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's predicated upon a healthy and holy fear of who God is and what His Word calls you to. That's foundational. It's hard to respond rightly when you lack a fundamental relationship with Jesus. You see, when you lack a fundamental relationship with Jesus, what that does is it, it puts a blockade right in the middle of the foundational principle of holy fear. You will have no fear. Paul says that in Romans. There's no fear in their eyes. They didn't fear God. Why does man fear if they don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Everyone's going to do what's right in his own eyes. It's going to be back to the judges. What follows in verses 162 to 168 is predicated upon a heart that stands in awe of God's word. It's the heart that's, heart, the heart that's dialed in, dialed in to God's word, manifests itself in evident ways. And I believe... It's significant that these are evident ways because as we consider in the New Testament how a believer is to walk and live. The believer is to walk and live in ways that are evident. How do I know that? Because of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Remember there's the list of the flesh followed by the list of the works of the Spirit. And just as the list of the flesh are evident 
so too the works of the Holy Spirit ought to be evident in our lives. So these are evident markers that we see in, in this stanza of the psalm. The first one is rejoicing or joy. Rejoicing. Look at verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Matthew 13, verse 44, came quickly to mind where Jesus was, was reciting the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And here it is, for joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Why does he buy the field? Because of the treasure. What's his, what's his response to finding the treasure? His joy. There is joy. You see, the field contained the treasure that brought him supreme joy. Selling all that he had was deemed... See, oftentimes when we read that parable, people get stuck on giving up everything. Giving up everything. Instead of giving up everything, why don't we look at what he's getting in return? You see, because selling all that he had was deemed a bargain. This was a bargain for what he was going to get in return. Do you rejoice at God's word as one who finds great treasure? A heart that stands in awe of God's word rejoices at the sound of his word. Rejoices. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says to rejoice always. It's a command. Philippians 4.4, familiar passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Jesus in John 15.11 says, These things I have spoken to you. These things particular to love my commandments. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You see, Jesus came not as a thief to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came that he might give you and provide for you life, abundant life, that you might come in and, and move in and out and find pasture. It's an abundant life that Jesus came to give. The psalmist says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Think about your emotion when you find great treasure. And I would ask you this morning if you rejoice at God's word as one who finds great treasure. A heart that's dialed into fearing God rejoices at his word. What else do we see in the text? Look at verse 163. We see a twofold aspect here. There's on one hand hatred of lying and love of God's word. The one who fears God has both a hatred of lying and a love for God's word. I hate and abhor lying, the psalmist says, but I love your law. Remember the context that we're dealing with. Princes persecute me without a cause. They persecute me without a cause. Perhaps lies have been spread. Perhaps untrue things have been spoken. In fact, we see evidence of this elsewhere in Psalm 119, verse 78. It says, let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with what? With falsehood. But I will meditate on your precepts. 
And so we see his response to falsehood. It's meditating on God's word. It's not trying to get him back. Psalm 119, verse 113. He says, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. Proverbs 12, verse 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal truthfully are his delight. And the general principle there in the proverb is that God hates lying lips. He hates lying lips. But when those lying lips are directed at you, when someone lies about you, the first response oftentimes is defensiveness, isn't it? We get defensive. We tend to want to set the record straight. We immediately see the lie toward us and not as an affront first and foremost to a holy God that we serve. You see, the psalmist hates what God hates. Lying. We too ought to hate what God hates. But by the way, the passage of Scripture in Proverbs gives us a list of things that God hates. You know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that we can look to and see what God delights in. But did you know there's a list of things that God hates in the Bible? Proverbs chapter 6. It's probably worth just running through those in bullet fashion. Because a couple of those tie into what we're talking about here. Lying lips. God hates a proud look. God hates lying tongue. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. God hates feet that are swift in running to evil. God hates false witnesses who speak lies. And God hates one who sows discord among the brethren. God hates those things, friends. Notice what he loves, though. He hates lying, but he loves the word. And the word is, according to Jesus in John 17, 17, the word is what? Truth. He hates lying, but he loves the word of truth. The heart of one who stands in awe of God's word loves it because it is truth. It's truth. That's why you love it. It's his truth. And the emotion that's expressed in 163, notice the emotion there. Polar opposites, aren't they? Hate, love. Hate, love. That, that, that encompasses the full spectrum. All the way over here, all the way over here. Hate and love, hatred toward every false way. Psalm 119, verse 104 says, and love toward the way of truth. Back in verse 30 of Psalm 119, he says, I've chosen the way of truth. I want you to take note of the three references to love in this stanza. We see it in verse 163. We see it also in verse 160. Five, those who love your law. And we see it also in verse 167. All three times, it's in reference toward one's love of the word. One's love of the word. And I believe that word love, it's overused today, isn't it? We probably find ourselves using the word love in a way that biblically doesn't hold as much weight 
You know, we, we have phrases like, I love pizza. I love spaghetti, whatever your favorite food is, put it in there. I love my spouse. That's a good kind of love. Contrast that with, I love my cat. Or, I love my job. Or, I love this book that I've been reading. Do you love each one of those items I just mentioned in the same manner? Probably not. Isn't there an unconditional element that's attached when you say that you love your wife? There's something else there when you say you love your wife. So what about your love for God's word? Does your love for this word show up in how often it gets opened? Does your love for this word manifest itself in regular conversations? In other words, when you're sitting at the lunch table, when you have opportunity to speak with people here in the body in particular, or when you have opportunity to speak with other brothers and sisters outside these walls, does your love for God's word show up in your conversation? Would people be able to pick up that you have been in God's word, that you delight in God's word? No, that you love God's word. There's a difference. Actions follow where your love is, friends. I'm afraid there's a greater love for entertainment, for pleasures, and hobbies rather than God's word today. Even among God's people, I'm speaking. I wonder, is there a love for this word of God that he's so graciously given to us? And in light of that, I wonder then if we need to repent and be called back to what we read about in Revelation, our first love. You know who that first love is, don't you? Jesus. Perhaps we need to be redirected back to our first love. Psalm 119, 97. I love what he says. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation. His love manifested itself in his meditation throughout the day on this word. He was taking this word in him. It was always on his mind. He loved it. He loved it in the true sense of the word. He loved God's word. And you know, there are rival loves that surround us. They vie for our attention. And they come in all shapes and sizes. There are a lot of you folks here today that like music. Music. Especially younger generation. Especially. But there's some of us who are older who also are attached to music. We like music. Music can serve as a rival love. Internet, social media. Phones that are glued to our palms. Have you noticed that today? It's like part of our hand now today. Sports. 
academics, movies. We can make up a whole list of things. That's just a few rival loves that are out there. 1 John 4 verse 8 says that God is love. That's who he is. He's love. Galatians 5, 23 is a list of the fruit of the Spirit. And in that fruit of the Spirit, we see that the first one on the list is what? Love. Love. The fruit of the Spirit. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not what? They're not burdensome. They're a joy. They're a delight. How can you truly say that you love him and yet not keep his commandments? John addresses this. How can you say, he says this in 1 John 2 verse 4, I know him, I know him, and yet not abide in his truth, and yet not love his word. John says that you are a liar. I didn't say you're a liar. John said you're a liar. God's word says you're a liar. And he says that the truth is not in you. A heart that stands in awe of God's word, hates lying, and loves truth, God's truth, God's word. Truth is contained right here in God's word. We keep looking at the text in verse 164. The third one here is praise. Praise. Seven times a day. I love this. Seven times. Remember what we're reading, friends. We're reading a genre of poetry. Okay, that's where we're at here. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. We are in the genre of poetry. Seven times a day. I will praise you. Because of why? Because of your righteous judgments. So a fear of God, a fear of His Word, it manifests itself in a life of praise. That's how it gets manifested. A life of praise. And note, the praise is not reserved for the gathering of the saints on a Sunday morning. How often does He lift up praise? The text says seven times a day. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that He is keeping a record in a book somewhere, checking a box each time throughout the day that his lips show forth praise. So it'd be like one, two, three, oh, I got four more today, um, four, um, five, six, I just need one more, um, seven, got him, seven times. Is that what he's talking about? Checking off seven of them. I, I don't think so. I, I believe that the expression, it captures this all-encompassing place of praise in his life. I was reminded of, of some words I was reading in uh, uh, Symbola, Jim Symbala's book on uh, spirit of praise. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And in this particular passage, he's talking about, he says, many times I've walked into our sanctuary. He's a pastor, okay, out in New York City. And he says, many times I've walked into our sanctuary during the praise and worship time, distracted and numb, distressed by some crisis or problem. But as I lifted my heart, voice, and hands to my Savior Jesus Christ, it wasn't long before my heart overflowed with rivers of joy. You see, there's something about praise that takes our eyes, our attention off of the problem, 
off of the circumstance, off of the persecution, as this context tells us, and puts it upon the one who alone can deal and handle with this situation. I was reminded of this this past week, as I sat in on Wednesday. Uh, I attended a chapel service at Indiana Wesleyan University. And they were doing some kind of uh, honoring an individual came in and he, he spoke for a bit. And that was good and that was helpful and that was instructive. But I have to be real honest. The best part about Wednesday's chapel were the two praise songs that were done at the end of the chapel. There was this full choir and there was a full orchestra. And they played these two songs. And the people that were leading, the person who was conducting the orchestra, you saw the joy on his face. The choir that was singing, you saw the joy that was there. The people who were, it were moving around. I know some of you that might be a little frightening. They were moving a little bit. There was joy in that place. And I remember sitting there, friends. I remember sitting there, and I remember weeping. Thinking to myself, this is good. Praise and worship. And for those few moments, I found myself just lost in praising God. Have you ever been there? You ever been in those moments? They're special moments. And I believe here in the text, when he says seven times a day, I praise you. It ought to be all-encompassing in our lives. Praise. Listen, praise to God is not only called for by the followers of Jesus, but listen to Psalm 145, verse 2. He says there, Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name. Listen to this. He says, I'll praise your name forever and ever. Praise is what we will be doing in heaven for all of eternity. The one who fears God and his word is filled with praise. Regular praise for the psalmist corresponds with what he keeps seeing in God's righteous word. That's what the text says. Seven times a day I praise you. Because. Why? Because. Because of your righteous judgments. You see, it's almost as though every time he sees the word, every time he hears the word, it reminds him, it draws him back to spirit of praise. He's praising God for what he's seeing in the word. He's soaking in the word and finds himself crying out, Hallelujah! He reads something in the page of scripture, he hears God's word, he hears something else, and he responds, Hallelujah! Praise be to the God of glory. It's praise. Friends, as we open up our words today, that ought to be our response as well. As we read something, as the Lord teaches us something through His Spirit, we ought to be quick to praise Him. Do we do that? And I'm convinced that as we do that throughout our day, we will be praising Him many more times than seven. Seven times seven times seven. It's going to be praise all day long. The text implies that his praise flowed out of his time in the word. And so it got me thinking, perhaps the lack of praise that's evident can be traced to this paltry diet of God's word. 
You see, open his word and you'll be amazed at the feast that awaits. Perhaps the reason for a lack of praise in our lives is there's a lack of opening this word and taking his word in. There's a lack of love for his word. I do believe there's a correlation. Praise from the upright is fitting. It's beautiful. It's proper for the saints of God. We sing songs like praise him, praise him, tell of his excellent greatness. All praise to him who reigns above in majesty supreme. Praise to the Lord, the almighty, the king of creation. You see, the heart that stands in awe of God's word is a heart that regularly praises him. Keep looking at the text. There's more. Verse 165. I believe the fourth thing we see here is great peace. Great peace. Have those who love your law. There it is again, the reference to your love. Love your law. And nothing causes them to stumble. Now the peace that's mentioned here is shalom. Shalom. It's a peace that that speaks to general prosperity of God's people. A peace that includes health. Physically and spiritually, a general well-being bestowed on the one who is trusting in God. This great peace is characteristic of one who loves God's word. Get that? It's characteristic. Great peace is characteristic of one who loves God's word. And notice the last part of the verse. Nothing causes them to stumble. Let's go back to our context in 161. Nothing causes them to stumble, not even persecution that comes from princes. Nothing's going to cause them to stumble, not even persecution. Not even unjust persecution. Not even persecution without a cause. It's not going to cause them to stumble. See, those who experience peace with God are recipients of the ongoing peace of God, which guards the heart and mind In Christ Jesus. Jesus speaks of this peace to his followers in John 14, 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, because he has given to us his peace. His peace which is going to stand solid when the storms of life come and the storms rage and beat against the house. It's going to be able to stand solid because we've built our life upon the rock of Jesus Christ. It's his peace that enables us to stand. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. Friends, there are people today that are looking for peace all over the place. I was reading something here of late that talked about how many people are doing searches on the internet to try and find hope. They're trying to find peace. They're trying to find all of these things in life that God and His Word has so clearly outlined. People are searching. People want peace. Problem is they're going in the wrong places to try and find it. In me you may have peace, Jesus said. In the world you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You see, you can never know the peace of God until and unless you have the peace that comes by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, he's the one who brought peace, Paul says in Ephesians. He preached peace. And he offers peace that passes all understanding to those who believe upon his name by faith. Did you notice that peace-filled people are filled with the Holy Spirit? By the way, that's another list. Love, joy, what? Peace. That's another fruit of the Spirit. You're filled with the Spirit. Peace ought to be evident in your life. We ought to be people growing in the fruit of peace. Are we? Nothing causes them to stumble. Not even death. Listen, death is frightening for a lot of people today. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, death is not fear. We we ought not fear death. Even this is not something, something we stumble over. Not even death. When you are at peace with God through Jesus Christ, death is not the end. It's but the beginning. Right? It's that song we sang earlier. It's that picture of his face I shall see at last. To be my joy through the ages. To sing of his love for me. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the entry into the very presence of God. Seeing Jesus. Being a tenant of heaven for all eternity. That's exciting to think about. Look at the next verse. 166. The, the, The fifth item here I'd like you to see from the text is hope. He says, Lord, I hope... For your salvation and I do your commandments. The man whose heart stands in awe of God's word. Hopes for the salvation of the Lord. Seems to be thinking in the future. Seems to be thinking ahead of things yet to come. And in the context of persecution. Remember our context. Persecution. The psalmist holds out hope. It's a hope for the Lord's rescue. Perhaps in the immediate. But if not. He's resting in the hope of glory that's yet to come. He may not get rescued from this present persecution, but he has a hope of eternal glory. He has a hope that he's going to get to see Jesus. He's going to be in heaven with the saints who've gone before him. Friends, do you know this hope? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18, he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Listen, all the persecution that may be leveled at you is Light affliction. Why is it considered light affliction? Because it's only for a moment. The Bible says that you are but a mist. You're here for a while and then you're gone. So guess what? Any persecution that you have to go through and endure is only going to be for a time. And that is good news. It's only for a time. Only for a limited time. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you are assured of this hope of eternal salvation. He goes on, he says... That this light affliction is working. It's, listen, the, the affliction that you're going through, it's working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. They're going to burn up. They're not going to be here. But the things that are not seen are eternal. And so this hope for God's salvation serves as the impetus. I want you to get the connection here in the text in 166. The hope that's here in 166. It serves as the impetus now for doing God's word. Okay? The hope we have in Christ manifests itself in doing the word. Living it out for all to see. In other words, there ought not be any lamps hidden under the bushel. We are meant to shine. We are the city on a hill. We are to let our light shine before others that they may see our Father in heaven and praise Him. 
Notice what effect the hope has upon the one whose heart stands in awe of God. Not only does he do the Lord's commandments, but he earnestly pursues, and this is the sixth and final one that he mentions, obedience. Obedience. That word keeps in the New King James. It's used in 167 and 168. We could, we could just put obey. He obeys. Obedience. My soul keeps or obeys your testimonies. And here it is again. And I love them exceedingly. So we see rejoicing. We see loving his truth and hating lying. We see praising. We see peace. We see hope. And now obedience. Keeping God's testimonies. Don't miss what he attaches to the obedience here, friends. He says, and I love them exceedingly. See, the word is attaching obedience to something that he loves. When I got to thinking about this, how often have you obeyed the word because maybe dad and mom said to read your Bible? How often has your obedience come minus the heart? You see, it's easy to obey minus the heart. It's easy. You can get the job done minus the heart. But God has called us to obey his commandments out of a love from the heart. We are to love it in that way. We are to do his commandments in that manner. As you look back, even on this past week, have you been obedient to the Lord from the heart? From the heart? Have you been obedient to the Lord? Think about the difference that this can make in you and to those around you. When you begin keeping God's testimonies simply because you love them exceedingly. You just love them. Think about the difference that's going to make in you, in your spouse, in your children, in those that you communicate with throughout your week. See, obedience out of love is from the heart and it's pleasing to the God that you serve. The psalmist initially repeats his obedience in the final verse. Look at this. He says at the beginning of verse 168, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. I obey them. In 167, he obeyed God's word and loved the word he was obeying. In 168, notice the conclusion. He says, I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. And here we see his obedience comes in light of who's watching. Right? His motivation. For obedience. It's not because dad said so. It's not because mom said so. It's because God said so. That's why I obey. God in his word tells me this is what I need to be doing. And that's why I'm obeying. I obey your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. See, he views God's presence as sufficient motivation to obey. The persecution that's there in 161... It needs to be brought forward here because four different times here in this, in this stanza, I believe he's making mention of connecting to this persecution. We see that his reference in 163 to I hate lying, which was perhaps a form of persecution happening to him. 
in verse 165, he says, nothing causes them to stumble. Not even his present persecution. In, in verse 168, he says, for all my ways are before you. Excuse me, in 166 was the, th the third one. I hope for your salvation. In light of the present persecution, which is unpleasant but temporal, unpleasant but temporal, I hope for your salvation. And then lastly in 168, for all my ways are before you. Even my current persecution, Lord. You know this current persecution better than I know it myself. You know all about it. So how does the psalmist respond to persecution without a cause? Notice that he doesn't endeavor to fight fire with fire. He doesn't do that. He doesn't weep and moan over it. He doesn't gossip to others about it. He doesn't complain or he doesn't grow weary about it. And listen, the reason he doesn't respond in that manner has everything to do with the state of his heart before God. He had a heart that stood in awe of God's word. He feared God and he held his word in holy reverence. And a heart that fears God in this way is going to respond rightly because it will have a bent toward, it will have a bent toward the word. It will have a bent toward what God has to say. We will respond rightly when we look to his word. And it may be painful. You still might go through hardships. You still might have a hard time. It might be difficult. It might be ugly. But it's but for a time. It is deemed truly a light affliction, however difficult and hard it may be. All of your ways are before the Lord, remember? He knows. A heart that rejoices in the word, hates lying, loves the truth, praises daily as he unfolds the word, he, he has opportunity to praise. A heart that fears God's word has great peace, which brings about stability. It produces hope and leads to growth and obedience. Princes persecuted Jesus Christ, friends, without a cause. Did you know that? Princes persecuted our Lord Jesus Christ without a cause. They nailed him to a cross, and yet the Bible says that it was for the joy, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And even while princes persecuted Jesus unjustly, he opened not his mouth, the Bible says. Instead, he walked in obedience to the truth and will of his heavenly Father, and he rejoiced in knowing he was carrying out the Father's plan, even though, from man's vantage point, it seemed that Christ had stumbled. Three days later, proved enough, though. Not even the grave could cause our Lord to stumble. Not even the grave. He was raised, and he lives forevermore. You see, as you consider how to respond to the persecution and challenges and trials that hit hard, they're very real in your life, be sure that you build upon Christ. There is no other foundation which you can lay other than that of Jesus Christ. Christ obeyed the will of his Father and he left behind in this book, he left behind all of his ways. Look at verse 168. That's what he left behind. He left behind all of his ways. And as if that was not enough, he gave his Holy Spirit to dwell within you forever. His role and his ministry is to point you to all of his ways. Jesus, I believe, is speaking to me. He's speaking to each one of you here today. And he's speaking at the close of this stanza. 
And he's saying, I've given myself. I've given my word. I've given you my spirit. All of my ways are before you. How now are you going to respond? Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. Your word is a blessing. And I pray as we read this stanza here this morning that we too would be captured by the love for your word. We would be captured by the rejoicing that's evident with one whose heart stands in awe of you. Father, we would be praising you many more times than seven in the course of a day. That as we open your word, as we meditate upon your word, it would give us reason to praise you at all times. Father, I pray that we would, in the midst of persecution that comes our way, Father, that we would hope for your salvation. That we would hold on to hope, knowing that however hard it is here, Father, we have a reward for those who are diligently seeking you. The Hebrew writer says there's a reward. Father, we look forward to that reward. We look forward, most importantly, to seeing the face of Jesus, to being with Jesus, to being with the saints in heaven, to being able to see those streets of gold, to be able to talk to these men of old, these saints who, who lived and walked by faith and not by sight, these saints who paved the way, this great cloud of witnesses. Lord, what an opportunity. What a joy it will be. We sing hymns that point us to heaven. And remind us of what that will be like. And it will truly be a great day of rejoicing when we see Jesus. Father, we look forward to that. And in the meantime, I pray that we would be doers of your word. I pray, Father, that there would be great hope held out. Father, as we walk according to your word, may we understand that those who love your law, those who have great peace, who love your law, Nothing will cause them to stumble. And we thank you, Lord, that we're able to see in this stanza a very clear picture of our Lord Jesus Christ who was persecuted without a cause, even unto death upon the cross. And yet, Father, he had his eyes set and focused toward that joy that was set before him. And he endured the cross for us as an obedient son. Father, thank you for the picture of Jesus. Thank you for the encouragement that he gives to us as we read this word, as we read about the psalmist and his situation and all around him it seems to be he's, he's pressed. And he's given to us a picture of how to respond to these difficulties and challenges that come our way. Father, I pray that each one of us would be inclined first and foremost to turn to you for help so that we might know how to respond to those who are persecuted. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.